Coming up on today's Green Jumper, Cloughy's surprise gift to an opposition striker who scored a hat-trick. The door opens, there's not a knock on the door. This guy bowls in, it's Brian Clough with a match ball. He's took the match ball, he's got all the Forest lads to sign it. He's walked straight into our dressing room. Now he's the same, young man, where's, where's the young man? He wrote, be good on it, Brian Clough. Plus, what it was like to play against Cloughy favourite, Paul Hart. If you met Artie, he's the loveliest man in the world, but he gave me so much abuse during the game, so much stick. He wind me up, he try and get me at it. Fast forward a year later, I moved to Sheffield Wednesday. I walk in, introduced to all the lads and that, and I'm like, oh, I didn't realise Hartie had gone there. And I was like, oh dear God. Plus a competition to win an unusual piece of artwork, celebrating Cluffy's trophy successes. Son, I'd like to work with you anytime it suits you. Hello and welcome to the Green Jumper podcast with stories and memories from the Brian Clough era. I'm Marcus Alton, the editor of the tribute website, brianclough.com. And my guest today is someone who has some great memories of old Big Ed, especially after scoring a hat-trick against Cluffy's Forest side. He's a former first division striker, described in one football matchday programme as the thinking man's centre forward. It's a big hello and welcome to Gary Thompson. How you doing, Marcus? You right? Yeah, it's great to have a chat with you today. What do you think of that description, the thinking man's centre forward? It did make me chuckle, actually, because uh, I can think of loads of people I played with and played against would never put me down as a thinking man centre forward. Impetuous. <laughs> rough at times but uh, the thinking man I'll have it though I'll, I'll definitely have that yeah it's not bad is it it's actually in a match day program um that I've got here from September 1990 um Cluffy's Forest oh, were, pl- were playing at Crystal Palace in division yeah, one yeah which obviously was mm-hmm. the equivalent of the Premier League and you were playing alongside yeah. um Ian Wright yeah that must have been quite an experience alongside Wrighty yeah I mean Wrighty uh how you see him on TV He's exactly the same, except his, his volume control's got probably gone down a little bit. But Ian was a very loud... But Crystal Palace was a very loud club. It was a very uh, lively club. Um, when I joined, I was only joining for eight games because Ian broke his leg and they just wanted to set them forward to maybe score some goals and make them stay, help them stay up. But Ian came back. We stayed up. Ian came back for the uh, cup final, did his thing and became a legend. But Ian Wright, Mark Bright, Andy Gray, all of them that I spent time with there, Solarco and that, that was a fantastic part of my life and very, very, I was, I was 30, which is probably why they call me the thinking man set the forward because I wasn't as impetuous as them. But uh, yeah, I mean, I love my time there at Palace. I, was, I, I stayed too long because after the cup final, um, Steve Coppola and myself were on the beach walking along, not Andy Land, but we were on the beach and uh, he was saying, well, do, do you want to stay big man? We'd, we'd love you to stay. And I just went, yeah, because I just love the place. But really at my age then, Ian and Mark were going to play regular. I was going to get the odd few games. We signed a kid called Stan Collymore, who you'd obviously know about. We had other players there. Jamie Morley was there and uh, loads of other strikers coming through. So really, I, I should have gone, moved on again because I basically wasted another year of my life. Although, to be fair, it was a great experience at Palace. Thinking about it now, because at that age, you need to play. I, sh- I should have moved on, but uh, I decided to stay. But I had a great time. You mentioned big Stan Collymore there. Uh, what was he like in those yeah. days? Well, Stan walked in um, sort of early in the next season and uh, I was injured at the time and uh, this big kid come in. They talked to him pretty quickly. They realised he could play and uh, he was an uncut diamond at the time. He, he left Palace in the end and went to South End, where he honed his skills, Forest bought him and he just moved on and on. But we could see when he first came, this kid, he had so much ability, so much going for him. Like 
he was just a little bit headstrong at the time and he was learning his trade, but uh, we knew we had a diamond there. Well, although you didn't score in that particular match against Forrest back in 1990, earlier in your career you did score a hat-trick and you were playing for West Brom at the time against Forrest. It was October 1984 and you had an interesting encounter with Cluffy then. Can you just paint a picture of that afternoon? Yeah, I'm, I'm playing for an Albion side that's... Uh, if you look at the Albion side at the time, the likes of Derek Stader in the team, Gary Owen, um, obviously Cyril had gone. I think Davy Cross was playing up front with me. Um, just trying to think who else was Paddy Grealish, Stevie Hunt, uh, Ali Robertson, uh, Martin Bennett might have been involved. Um, we had a very, very good side, but we were very, if you look at the record that season, we were very uh, hit and miss. We'd win a couple, lose a couple. And so, um, but th- during that time, I was I ended up top scorer for the 18 months, two, two and a half years I was there. So I was scoring goals. Uh, things was going well personally, but as a club, we were just too up and down. So the background to it, Johnny Giles is the manager. He's uh, introduced a more passing style of play, but still I'm the big target, man. So it doesn't really matter how they play because at the end of the day, it's coming to me in around the box or down the sides or whatever. I played, uh, I think, Chris Fairclough and Paul Hart were the two centre-halves that day. And um, Chris was always a very, very good footballer, uh, very quiet, just going with his game, just did his thing. Harty, on the other hand, was quite possibly, when he played at Leeds, then he was at Forest. I wouldn't say nemesis, but every time I was like, oh, Paul Hart's here. Because if you if met Hartie, he's the loveliest man in the world, but he gave me so much abuse during the game, so much stick. He wind me up, he try and get me at it. So fast forward a year later, I moved to Sheffield Wednesday. I walk in, introduced to all the lads and that, and I'm like, oh, I didn't realise Hartie had gone there. And I was like, oh, dear God. And so like the first couple of days, feel our way around each other a little bit. Then we all, Lee Chapman, Mickey Lyons, they, they say, new players, we've all got to go for a drink. So you're sitting there having a drink and that. So I'm with Artie. So I'm like, what was all that about? And Artie went, you're hot. You're, you're always uh, aggressive. You're always bubbling over. So he started to say things and wind you up, hope, you know, hoping to get me sent off or whatever. And I was like, oh, right. And to be fair, Paul Hart, I had a great relationship with Gary Shelton, Gary Megson, Lee Chapman, Paul Hart, Mark Chamberlain. We all went round together all the time. Fantastic crew. Hart is brilliant, man. Uh, his kids used to come with us. We'd all go out for something to eat with his missus and kids. We'd all spend time together. Harty was the top, top bloke. I, I love him to death. So you were up against Harty that particular afternoon um, playing for yeah. for West Brom. But it sounds like you had a bit of success. Yeah, yeah, it went really well. I mean, generally, Harty got the better of me. But uh, that day, it was, I think I was getting to the stage where uh, I think I was 24, 25, and I was scoring goals and uh, things were going really well for me. And I just was full of confidence that day. I'm not even sure the times of the goals, but uh, so I think two of them were quite late on. So I was I was on a roll and I was confident and things were going out well for me. Uh, scored the hat-trick, obviously full of beans because uh, we won the game, got me hat-trick. Johnny Giles, he's a, he's, he's a hard taskmaster, Gilesy. Uh, but people say, uh, because I've got this book out, people say about the book, oh, are you going to have a go at Gilesy? I would never have a go at him because at the end of the day, they got me scoring and playing as well as I did during my career. Okay, he was hard with me, but he was hard with me because he was a player at Leeds United who demanded the very best. So as a manager, he'd be exactly the same. His standards are high. A bit like people go on about Roy Keane. People don't like Roy Keane because he has high standards. And people who have lower standards go, oh, a lot of people talking to me like that. If you want to be the best, you've got to be around the best. Their standards are high. Johnny Giles had high standards. So whatever I did was never quite good enough. That day, I scored the hat-trick. I've come, well, after the, <laughs> the whistle's gone, and I've gone, uh, 
was flat to the referee. So I got up to the referee and said, oh, good mess ball. And he said, I'm got it. So I'm like, you are. He went, I'm got it. I said, you're the referee. You're supposed to have the mess ball. Anyway, pardon my language. I did, I did swear at him a couple of times. And I mean, to be fair, thinking about it, he could have sent me off. But I walked off a bit of a huff like, got into the dressing room and uh, jo Johnny Jones sat us all down and he said, well, great team performance. We've done this, we've done that. There's me thinking I'm going to get a bit of love from him. Say, big man, you did the business and that like. And he went, yeah, well, he's at the end of the day, we, you know, you got your goals. He said, but that's what I expect to forward to do. Like, you know, you got your goals. It's like people, it's when keepers make a world-class save and they go, well, you're goalie, catch it. So like, I was a little bit, oh, right. Anyway, he's done his team talk and that, his debrief. And then the door opens. There's not a knock on the door. This guy bowls in. It's Brian Clough with a match ball. He's took the match ball. He's got all the Forest lads to sign it. He's walked straight into our dressing room. Now, Johnny Giles, he's not the biggest man in the world, John, but he doesn't he don't stand on ceremony with anybody. Brian Clough walks in. Johnny Giles never said a word. So he's bowled in. Now he's the same. Young man, where's, where's the young man? So I'm like, oh, the, the ball. So he's come over to me and he gave me the ball and he said, uh, make sure all your teammates sign it. It's a special occasion. Like, um, big, you make sure, uh, right, he, he wrote, be good on it, Brian Clough. And he said, make sure they all sign it because it's a special occasion. Like, look, not, many, not many people get atrix. Obviously, I got loads, but not many people get atrix. And uh, uh, basically, you did very well today. Walked out and that was it. And uh, I'd got all the last to sign it. I'm not a great collector of memorabilia, but the Albion, the Albion chairman got us a plinth. So I had the ball on a plinth. And my mum and dad used to keep all the memorabilia. I went home back to my house, say about six months later, and my nephew and my son were booting the ball around the back garden. So as you can imagine, like, yeah, the the, the, the pride of my career like, was, was just flattened. But uh, yeah, Brian Clough was superb that day. Uh, good sport as well, considering he didn't, didn't like to lose. He, uh, he gave me lots of uh, respect for scoring that trick. It was, it was just an enjoyable moment and very unexpected. He's, I mean, Brian Clough, to, to do that, to have the thing to do that after um, getting beat, I, I thought it was a mark of class. And people say things about him towards the end of his life, his, his career and his life, as it were. But uh, I remember that that just summed up to me, the geezer was class. I mean, there was another incident when I was at uh, Crystal Palace and we played uh, Nottingham Forest in the uh, FA Cup. And you'll have to check for their dates on this and that. But uh, we're playing in the FA Cup. I think we played them at Sellers and we drew... Anyway, we go, and he, he hated the way um, Palace played. He hated that style because it was very aggressive, um, down the channels, ball in the box, blood and thunder football, if you like. And, for, for, and Forrest, even though they were on the way in a bit, still wanted to play the, pro the proper game. And we played them in the second game. I remember Hodgie was playing for them. I knew Hodgie from, um, he'd been back, he'd, his second time back, I knew Hodgie from Aston Villa. So uh, they're winning the game, and to make a point, I don't know if you remember this. He brought off, it might be Hodgie brought off, but he played the last 10 minutes with 10 men just to make a point. And Copper was fuming after the game. I remember us going in going, who does he think he is? It's Brian Clough, isn't it? You know, you got, you, got, you got to take your slaps off him every now and again. Yeah, there were two cup replays, I think, that year. Three three matches in total, Forrest and, and yeah. Palace. Um, and mm. I, I think that was the year Forrest got to the final. And unfortunately, yeah, of course, it, could, it, 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 it wasn't to be uh, that the one trophy that uh, Cluffy wasn't able to get. But uh, that day for West Brom, ha had you been a big admirer of Cluffy at that time? At the time, I knew about him. I'd seen him on TV. I knew the incident, the thing at Leeds. He went to Nottingham Forest. And like as a kid, 
obviously, when I'm just growing up and getting into football, that he's manager of Derby. Then all of a sudden, it all changes. Then he gets to Leeds, it all changes. Everyone's saying he should get the England job. He obviously doesn't get the England job. He ends up in Nottingham Forest. And then he moulds the Nottingham Forest side. And I've, I've read his book, but it's, it's a massive book. Like, um, what's his name? Um, oh, is it the Jonathan Wilson book? No, that's the no, one. Nobody yeah. says thank yeah. you. No one says thank you, yeah. Now, I read that. And like, even me thinking I knew a bit about Cluffy, I was just amazed how many goals the fella scored. And like, I mean, this is a guy that scored goals for fun. And people talk about it. His record is frightening. As a centre-forward, it's frightening. But uh, yeah, so I knew of him. Uh, I knew bits about him. I'd seen him on the TV. I'd seen the incident with him and Don Revy having the <laughs> that conversation that day. Uh, but he was Brian Clough. He was larger than life. And when I went to um, Aston Villa, Jim Walker was the physio. Jim Walker said to me, when he bought Justin Fajnou, I was at Coventry at the time, and he looked at me, and he said, oh, he quite liked the look of me. But in the end, obviously, one decision made, he ended up signing Faj. Didn't really work out for either of them. But uh, he said, you know, I said, oh, Clough, like, he'd like you, your type. He's like the way you are and that. Which I thought I took as a massive compliment. Then, like, I mean, obviously, years later, uh, the Palace thing was yet to come. But it didn't change my opinion of the fellow. He'd say his piece, he'd let you know. Um, but he also had a, a, a mark of class about him. Well, we'll talk about whether you would have liked to have played for him in a few moments. But at this point, we'll just take a short break. You're listening to the Green Jumper podcast with myself, Marcus Alton, and it's competition time. The prize is a really eye-catching piece of artwork celebrating Cluffy's trophy successes at the city ground. It's called the Brian Clough Trophy Map and it's based on the multicoloured London Tube Map. Essentially, it links the players with the different teams that won the trophies. It covers the cup final successes from 1978 to 1992. It's been cleverly designed by football fan Chris Lee and you can see it on brianclough.com. There's a link there from the news page. To win it, just tell me who scored twice for Cluffy in the 3-2 Wembley win against Southampton in 1992. To enter, visit the podcast page on brianclough.com where you'll see the competition entry form and the terms and conditions. That question again, who scored twice for Cluffy in the 3-2 Wembley win against Southampton in 1992? This is the Green Jumper podcast with stories and memories from the Cluffy years. My guest is Gary Thompson, who got some special praise from uh, Cluffy after scoring a hat-trick against him for West Brom in 1984. Would you have liked to have played for, for Clough? Do you think you could have done? Yeah, I mean, uh, when you see some of the players, I mean, Peter With for me, was a, a, what they call a journeyman centre-forward, hard-working centre-forward, just put himself around in that. Um, the likes of John O'Hare and people like that. Um, they looked average players, but they, he got that extra bit out of them. John Robertson, no one out there could handle him. Even John Robertson, at his peak, looked a very chubby lad, but he could cross, the, could beat a man across the ball. The way he dealt with the Trevor Francis situation when he brought him in, he looked like a bloke that could get the best out of people to push your buttons. He knew how to get the point made. He knew how to get the best out of you. Bearing in mind that you were sent off once or twice um, during your career. Do, do you think you, yeah. how would you have fared with Cluffy's emphasis on discipline? Yeah, that, that's where I think we might have fell down. I think he'd have liked me aggression. He liked the fact that I'd, I'd scored goals at the time. I was lively at Coventry and West Brom. Um, but I do think my tendency to get myself into trouble would have always counted against me. I don't. I think because Brian looked, he, he didn't like his players even arguing with referees. 
he wanted them to actually be disciplined all the time. He liked them to, if you've seen the way, the way I dressed when I played as well, my socks was always around my ankles and that. I don't think Brian Clough would have enjoyed that at all. But that was me. That was my style. I was a bit scruffy and that. And um, he, would have, he would have changed that. I mean, Graham Taylor, when I went to Villa, one of the first, I was injured for about 10 months when I came back. And obviously I played my first couple of games and my socks around my ankles, my shirts out. And he said to me, uh, do you like playing for Aston Villa? Yep. If you want to play against someone, you're going to have to smarten up. You're going to have to pull your socks up. And I was like, yeah, yeah, but gaffer. And he said, no, no, if you don't do that, you're not playing. End off. So I think Brian Clough would have been on the same line. So I, I wanted to play. I'm about to do it. Well, I was looking at um, a newspaper cutting from that uh, weekend when you scored the, the hat-trick and Viv Anderson scored for Arsenal that, that yeah. same weekend. And of course, Viv played for Brian Clough and was the first black player to represent England in, in a full international match. Yeah. Were you inspired by players like Viv and Cyril Regis and Brendan Batson at, at West Brom? They were people who many young black players looked up to. Yeah, yeah, massively. I mean, when I was a kid, uh, Albert Johansson played for Leeds on the wing against um, Liverpool in the FA Cup final. I remember, as only kid, I was about four or five years of age, and I remember clocking it, but not really registering. A few years later, then I, re- I registered. Black man played in, in a cup final. Like Then all of a sudden, um, I think it was Clyde Best played for West Ham. Addy Coker came through as well. And there was a guy, I think it was John Charles. He played at fullback. So th- them three were playing for West Ham, but they only played... Clyde played a lot of games, but the other two never played an awful lot. Then there was a lull. Then all of a sudden, like uh, Bob, Bib Anderson, Bob Hazel. I think Bob was the first one to get an international cap. I think it was a youth cap. Then obviously Bib gets the full cap. Then, so like, as a young kid, like Ian Wright always said that once he saw Cyril and people like that, he thought, I can play. I can do this. And it's exactly how I felt when I saw Bib uh, Anderson playing for England or Bib Anderson playing for Forest, even. I think, well, yeah, I can get myself in around the first team. Then uh, the Albion signed uh, a young black centre forward, Cyril Regis. Within eight months, he's in the first team and he's scoring goals that you've not seen centre forward score before. So as a centre forward, I look at him and I want to learn from him. I watched Laurie Cunningham, who used to glide across the pitch. And as a young kid, all these people made massive impressions on me. But the, the fact is, you're looking at these players playing professional football and it, it, when you're in a, in a club, it doesn't matter. And the club was the same. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, whatever. Can you do the job? Can you perform? And that's the way we looked at it. I just wanted to play in the first team. I just wanted to score goals. I wanted to make a name for myself. But these were already doing it. So they were something to aspire to. So we, I looked at these players and, well, if they can do it, and I'm a different type of player to Cyril, as it were, and I ended up playing with him at West Brom for a good time. And, and he taught me an awful lot. But you look and say, well, if they can do it, I can do it. Ian Wright saw Cyril. He thought exactly the same. And young kids seen Wright, he thought exactly the same. So it, it goes on and on. But yeah, most black kids will look at people because they were the forerunners. They were actually like making waves at the time and like Vim Vim making his debut for England as well. And then you think Johnny, Johnny Barnes scoring that wonder goal. And for, fair, for John Barnes scoring the wonder goal went against him because people expected him to do it every time he played for England and it was never going to happen again. So it kind of went against him really. But that sort of thing, you look at that, well, okay, he's doing it for England. He's doing it for Liverpool. He's doing it for Watford. You, you want to do that. You believe you've got a chance of doing that. I know Viv in the past has spoken about the, the racial abuse that um, he, he yeah. faced in those early days. Is that something that you um, had to face as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, as a young player in the reserves, it doesn't really set you up for it. You have some, uh, little set twos at times with your own teammates, but after that's not the black thing. It's just 
so much testosterone and so many young kids trying to forage ahead. But uh, then you go to away grounds and reserves, there's not an awful lot of abuse. But I remember going to Everton and uh, they had a guy called, I think it was Cliff or Clint Marshall, and he was a right right winger and he had a beautiful, a black man, beautiful afro, like a John Shaft afro, where there wasn't, it wasn't a hair out of place, a bit like George Berry, but not as big. He came on and he played right-hand side for Everton. But in a reserve game, he got booed on. I remember warming up and hearing his boos and looking around and seeing him. And then thinking, oh, no, I must have been served. Then the game started and there was only about 50 people there. And they booed him then. He actually played for Everton first team a few times, but he got abused. And that was the first time he made an impression on me that uh, being black, people were going to single it out. By the time I get in the first team, it's only when I went away, say West Ham or Millwall or um, Newcastle, Middlesbrough, you, you get it would be massive abuse. I, um, I scored, um, well, I scored a hat trick in the League Cup semi final, two proper goals and an own goal. And uh, I didn't even think about it after, but the next day the press came around and took pictures of me and my girlfriend. My girlfriend's obviously, who became my wife, was obviously a white girl. And uh, about the week later, all I got was like just ridiculous hate mail. And like, I'm, I'm one of them because I opened me, me letters, I'm reading, roll it up, throw it in the bin. Danny Thomas, who was in the same team, Danny was so upset about it all. He took it very, very personally. And I said, well, at the end of the day, I'm not going to allow them to upset me. I've scored the goals. They're unhappy with that. We've got the second leg to come. I don't care. I'm just going to go with it. But Danny, it did upset Danny a little bit. And like, I think if I were a different type of person, it might have upset me. But uh, a lot of the, the abuse, I always felt that you'll give me stick because I'm good or because I'm, um, I sort of twisted it around. You, you'll give me abuse because I'm a threat to your team. So that's the way I looked at it. And now I think about it, like I was obviously just very, very naive and stupid, but that's, that's the way it worked at the time. You've put your memories in a book, Don't Believe yeah. a Word, it's called, written with the sports journalist, yeah. uh, Bill Howell. How did you get on with the process of, of putting it all down in print? Well, I've known Bill for about 20 years, a massive Albion fan. I started doing a bit of work for uh, the Mail, I think it was. Just did a couple of things, articles, and then watched a couple of games, and I watched them with Bill. Now, Bill, he's a very he's, a, he's one, of, one of my best mates, and he likes the odd tipple. So we'd be having a tipple, and we'd, we'd swap in a few stories, and Bill kept saying to me, he'd watch, I'd be doing bits on the game, and I'd, I'd notice things, and he'd say, like, oh, you should be doing more, you should be on Sky and all that, which is another story, because Alan McAnally said to me back in, was, Alan McAnally's one of my best mates in football, he said to me back in the day when he started at Sky, you want to get on this big man? And I was like, nah, nah, I was coaching at Northampton, not interested in all that, and like... Uh, as it turns out, what a bad move that was. But uh, Bill kept saying about, uh, you know, you, you could do a bit of this. Then he said, oh, we'd have stories and I'd tell him stories about Graham Taylor and different things. And he's saying, you got a book in there, you got a book. And I have no interest in writing a book. He asked me year, for years and I was nah, nah, nah. And then one day, uh, about two years ago, I met him. We had a couple of beers, just chatting away. And then he took me to the publishing house and that, Stuart Curtis. And I knew Stuart from the Albion as well. Got to chatting. And like, before I knew it, they sort of weaseled me into saying, hey, okay, I'll do it. And it's then I start thinking, oh, hang on a minute, so how are we going to make this work? But it worked out brilliantly because Bill, he said, like, what I'll do, we'll start with a few, I'll ask you a few questions, you tell me whatever, but I'm one of them, like, as you've gathered, if you ask me a question, if I can get 20 minutes out of it, then I will do. So, like, he's asked me the question, I've, I've gave him the bits I, I had, I had a dictaphone as well, so then I could remember stories, I'd put them down, He'd send me chapters. I'd correct it because obviously some things are not meant to go in print. And then, uh, yeah, bit by bit, it just it got not better and better, but he honed it. 
we had um, a proofreader read it who read it all in three days apparently and he, he really loved it and I'm, I'm not sure myself because I'm thinking well this is my life but how many people are going to find my life that interesting so I, I'm not, not fussed about it and I wasn't precious about it but we did the graph we got through it and in the end it, it was all done and then um, to be fair I've had some very very good reviews on it so I just think I'm going to get it out there to more people but yeah I'm, I'm really proud of it now but it's for something I never wanted to do never interested in doing it's uh, I'm very proud of it and where did the title come from don't believe a word well when I was a, a typical young black kid I've uh, I've got the commentary and we've ended up for a guy that used to listen to soul and reggae and my dad loved a bit of Elvis and all that, I wouldn't listen to too many different sort of styles of music. I go to Coventry and they're listening to um, Steely Dan and um, the, the Eagles and different things. And I'm like, what's all this? But bit by bit, some of it's not too bad. Anyway, we get persuaded one day with the girls to go uh, to a concert. And I had no interest in going to this concert. Like, So I, it's Thin Lizzy. So I go to this concert. I'm sitting in one of the seats and... Um, I think Haitley was with us and Danny Thomas and all that with our girls and that. And this geezer was walking up the steps and he went, um, he's shouting, he's in my seat. So he's quite across to me and he's gone, you're in my seat, mate. And he, but he's been really loud. And I've gone, uh, I've got up and said, listen, mate, if I'm in your seat, I apologise. But if you ever speak to me again like that, you can you can get the, gather the rest of what I said. So we're both sitting next to each other. I'm thinking he's going to club me. I'm thinking any minute now he's going to kick off like. And all of a sudden everything goes black. Then the, the, the stage light goes on. And there's this black guy in the middle of the stage and he's just got a bass guitar. And I look at him and I'm like, that's the, that's the coolest man ever. That's who I want to be. And this is Phil Linnett. So like, um, it, it's in homage to Phil Linnett really because uh, after that, I started listening to his music, got quite into it. And like, uh, that's why the title is uh, one of his tunes, Don't Believe a Word. And um, that's how it all started really. Brilliant. Well, the book, Don't Believe a Word, is available through Curtis Sports. Just put Curtis Sports into a, a search engine. Gary Thompson, thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure, Marcus. Enjoyed it. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Don't forget, there are discounts on my Cluffy books on brianclough.com and I'll personally sign them for you. Thanks again and I'll speak with you soon when we'll share more memories of the great man in the green jumper. <laughs>